the most important number in private lending and real estate investing for that matter is what is the property worth, right? And there can be a multitude of different opinions about what a property is worth. But at the end of the day, as the lender or the investor in a private lending opportunity, you really need to know what a property is truly worth. Thanks for tuning in to the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast, the show about starting a private lender in Canada, the mortgage industry, and the real estate industry. Your hosts are Neil Andrino and Ryan McNeil. Enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. We're episode eight of the Canadian Private Lenders Podcast with your hosts, Ryan and Neil. Neil, how's it going, buddy? Things aren't too bad. I was funny. I always talk to you about how I don't want to make everything too public, but I did have a little accident over the weekend. So I'm a little sore. I'm a little sore. I'll leave it at that. But uh, otherwise, it's not too bad. Falls progressing. Bonds came down a little bit. There's a lot of weird conversation in the markets regarding that the bond investor segment is kind of changing their mindset. And now they're trying to lock in the yields because they're afraid that there's not necessarily more room for growth. And so that's actually pushing the yields down which ultimately pushes down long-term insured rates, which is nice for a lot of buyers that are out there trying to buy. And then for a lot of people that are trying to do refis, whether it's commercial multi-unit or just a single family home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, glad you're here in one piece, Neil. But yeah, yeah it's, certainly, <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly nice to see some positive news on the real estate side of things, even if it's more forward-looking news. Yeah. There seems to be some trends developing that... Uh, you know, things could start to ease off into 2024, but uh, I guess we will see a lot of uh, uncertainty still as well. I think a lot of us are fingers crossed. Absolutely. Before we get into it, this is very specific to Halifax, and it's not necessarily directly a mortgage thing, but did you see the house that got listed in, in North End Halifax for three and a half million bucks? I did not. I'm going to pull it up right now, though. Yeah, if you if you have opened one of the search engines, it's on Acadia Street. It's a new listing, so it's got a bubble on it. This kind of blew my mind, but it's this infilling that you've seen in Toronto and like Vancouver that's done so well. Like it always blows my mind when I see these houses that are like super modern and they're five million bucks, but then they're surrounded by basically I'll say like normal houses. And to me, this is one of the first, I'd say, true like big boy houses in wow. Halifax that's like this. We've had infill homes, but they've always been maybe like if the street trades for 400, they have like an $800,000 infill, maybe a million bucks. This street trades probably on average five, 600 grand to the point the house, yeah. maybe five doors down, sold for 475. Yeah. And they've now bought a house, torn it down, built this. It's a single family with an in-law suite. Pretty cool. It's, it's very like, wow. Yeah. This is no uh, drywall. I mean, it's very impressive, very impressive, very modern looking property for sure. And you're absolutely right. All the comparables on the street look like they're 450 to 650 range. Mm -hmm. But this is something I'd expect to see in the south end, not in the north end. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was my thought too. But yeah, like I was literally every wall is like marble or wood. All the touch points are like metal, glass. I mean, it's beautiful. It's super cool. So, Neil, let's make some predictions. And yeah, let's make some predictions here and, and circle back once it does sell. What's your pick? Okay. Ah, like, I have no confidence this is bad, but I see this. We don't have like celebrities and people with big money. So, my prediction is this sits for years, 
for years. And it finally, it either goes to the rental market and someone pays like $15,000 a month for the upstairs and three grand for the basement. Or if it does sell, I'm going to say like two and a quarter. And it's listed at three and a half for everyone listening. It's yeah. listed for $3.5 million. It's a brand new build. It's super modern. Very cool. Tons of marble. I'm not saying it's not worth three and a half million bucks and they didn't spend $3 million building this thing. I just know that I don't actually know, but I'm guessing like the Halifax market, like we don't have a bunch of random people rolling around that have just made, like we don't have athletes. Like, you know, big cities have athletes that make $10 million a year, $20 million a year. And are like, this is the neighborhood I grew up in. And I have mm-hmm. so much money. I don't care. I don't think we have that. What do you think? Yeah. And I'd be concerned too. I don't even know if, you know, there'd be a long-term renter willing to pay, you know, 15 grand a month or whatever it's going to be. I would see this more of a fit on the short-term rental side, right? Where you're charging an exorbitant amount every night. True, true. But but that's a challenge in Halifax now too, in in this community. I don't know. My first thought was 2.7. That could still be a little high, but that's kind of where my initial thought was. But I mean, 3.5 in this neighborhood, it'd be unprecedented for sure. I don't know. It'd be a fun one to watch. 100%. I don't even know if there's been like many, if any, really, that have sold over a million bucks in North End. I think there might be two or three houses. Probably not many. Maybe like multi-units, right? But not single family stuff. Yes. That's yeah. not single families. No way. So this is basically just like blowing the market out by 4x. At least. Anyways, thought I just saw it and I was like, I had to ask because I've been waiting for this to come on market. I've been seeing the updates and I was like, holy hot damn, they chose a hot price on that thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> oh smokes anyways that's not what we're here for no that was a good chat though surprisingly yeah you sent me an article do you want to uh yeah yeah so we're going to talk about uh property valuation and why it's so important in private lending today yep but before that saw a very interesting article it's not even an article it's an opinion piece in the globe earlier this week titled the housing crisis is not just a supply issue here are two solutions to fix demand Mm -hmm. and the article basically outlines that yeah there's a lot of talk about supply being an issue which is very true but there's no focus on the demand side of the equation and basically stating that it gets little attention and here's the two solutions that they have (laughs) basically number one and i'll get you to comment on this after we go through them number one a lifetime cap of one million dollars on the personal residence capital gains exception and basically the goal of this would be to discourage retirement strategies based on gains from selling a house and in turn would also stop investors from buying renovated living for the minimum amount of time to claim the tax credit and then flipping it for a tax gain. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's point one. Point two was a limit applied to the amount of interest recorded as a business expense for single family residences used as rentals. And they make a comment after here, after clearly slamming real estate investors that we're not, <laughs> a- not advocating that we slam real estate investors or torching the housing market and tanking the economy. <laughs> and immediately after that, they state that Real estate represents 13% of GDP. So directly, indirectly, it's probably 30. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That's just, yeah, yeah, good point. 
But Neil, love to hear your comments and feedback on these <laughs> uh, these couple suggestions here. Okay, so I might have a little bit of a surprise for you. So the $1 million capital gains exemption, I think this is ludicrous, like just straight up for this simple fact that basically at the peak there, our average home price in Canada was 800k. In two of our largest, most populated provinces, the average price is over a million bucks. So basically, you're saying that now everyone gets taxed in their house. That's effectively what you've done here now is just if you own a home, you have to pay tax on the capital appreciation of, of your property. So to me, that does feel a bit nuts. And I also don't think people are buying people are buying for a mixed bag of reasons, including like wealth generation, like they want to gain wealth in owning a home. But people aren't moving from a one bedroom apartment in their 20s into a three or four bedroom house because they're like, oh, this is going to help me gain wealth. They're like we need the space. I need to have kids and I would like to have a dog and I'd like to have a family and all these other things. And I'd like to have the space. And then the appreciation is always a bonus. But very few people, I think, are buying directly because of that. But I get the mindset. It's like if you, if you look at a home and you're like, you don't think you're going to make a bunch of money, it's a little less attractive. But again, I think that doesn't really get rid of the demand aspect. As a real estate investor who owns apartments, I could see this actually being a benefit because this actually changes. It does start to feed into changing the cultural mindset that buying is better. And so people might just rent. They're like, well, if I can't make any money on buying the real estate, I'll just rent for the rest of the time. But again, this does the same concept of it basically shuffles the real estate into the hands of the few. And you see in Europe, that's why a lot of real estate is insanely expensive. And the families that own it are insanely rich. And then everyone else just rents. And that means like their whole life, they'll just never own the asset. So anyways, long story short, even as an investor who potentially could actually see gains from this, because real estate, I probably will rent a lot of my primary residences. Like I will rent the space because I have my investments tied up. I would still say this is a bad idea where I think it's it just basically a, applying another tax to everything in Canada. Like everything you own is taxed to the hilt. Anyways, that was a long-winded answer. What, uh, what were we going to say before I get to number two? I was just going to say, like, how does it fix affordability though, right? Which is the goal here. It doesn't. And well, the proven thing with taxes, every time they apply a tax to anything, people are like, well, I got to pay capital gains. So I'm actually, instead of selling for a million, I want a million four. Mm-hmm. I see this all the time when I call investment property owners. Like I call apartment buildings and he's like, yeah, man, because I have to pay a capital gains bill of $500,000 on this, I won't sell for less than a million six. I know it's worth, let's say a million, but I have this huge looming tax bill. And so I'm not going to net anything once I pay out my mortgage. And in again, real estate, I think it, it'll actually stifle the market. Like it'll be less movement of property because of it. But anyways, weird one to me. And I think it comes from, I would like to know if the two people that wrote that article, do they own a house? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, good point. That might change their perspective. Good point. And the other thing is I saw some interesting stats in, a, in another article that new listings are way up across the board. The interest rate effect still hasn't taken full effect in the market yet, right? Like we're just starting to see it. This was interesting to me. New listings in September, GTA up 44%. Condo market up 50%. Mm-hmm. Greater Vancouver up 28%. Calgary up 21%. Ottawa up 10%. I didn't have local data. I don't know. I don't. You probably know better locally here, Neil, what we're seeing in Halifax. But I think our listings going up here as well. Yeah, I don't have the exact stat, and I haven't pulled the year over year. But one hundred percent, we have more inventory on market. It's just plain and simple. People are starting to feel the pinch. There are investors that just don't necessarily want to be a part of it because they're not making any cash flow on their properties. And so, kind of contrary to what they said in the article, 
interest rates are doing their work and they're just having a very short-sighted vision where it's like we're at the very start of this you can't make that comment that interest rates aren't enough until you wait another two years to watch it play out because people's mortgages have to renew and like there's so much that that impacts 100 percent. yep but yes we're, we're definitely starting to see it's also people's like before everything just sold in all markets now yep. we're having houses sit so like inventory is continuing to creep because we're just having a lot of homes sit on market Absolutely. And you talk to any informed mortgage broker out there, they're going to say exactly that, Neil. We haven't seen the back end of this crisis when the majority renewals come up in 2024 and 2025, and people have to renew at a rate that's four or five points higher than they're currently at. You know, I don't think we're going to have much of a supply issue at that point. No, there's going to be a lot of people who own a lot of homes that they don't want to be a part of anymore. Also, when people start seeing prices come down, there's a general sentiment that changes. To quickly touch on number two, the interest expenses. Mm-hmm. Again, this is to me, it's like I'd be willing to bet they don't own investment properties. And the reason I say that is investment properties make five or six percent. Yeah. So if you can't take away the interest expense, you actually don't make any money on the property. And I don't know if we'll get this much viewership or I'll, I'll get clipped on Reddit probably for this, but <laughs> I understand like if you can't own the place cash and if you can't pay your own bills and you shouldn't have a rental property. Totally fine if you guys want to take that mindset, but then there'd be no rental properties on market because nobody would be able to afford them. And so the few that would be on there would be insanely expensive. And it would basically put everybody needs to own a house. And so the smallest house now is probably three grand a month to buy and own. So if you pay less than three grand a month and you're saying you shouldn't have rental properties if you can't afford them, you just prepare yourself that you're, whatever you're paying now is going to go up to $3,000 a month because that's what you're going to have to pay to live in a property. So again, interest expense needs to be a write-off. Otherwise, the financials just plain and simple don't make any sense. And the government's not going to step up to just build a ton of housing for everybody. So, which I think that might actually be the true solution. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we covered that pretty nicely, Neil. So let's, uh, let's move into today's topic, which is very important in private lending. That's property valuation. Probably one of the most important. Well, you know what? That was going to be my first comment, Neil. I was going to say the most important number in private lending and real estate investing for that matter is what is the property worth, right? And there can be a multitude of different opinions about what a property is worth. But at the end of the day, as the lender or the investor in a private lending opportunity, you really need to know what a property is truly worth. Okay. And I was just going to add on there too. I mean, appraisals are extremely important in this world too, but you also need to do your own analysis to confirm what we feel is truly the value of the property. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're lending money on that value. Yeah. Everything is related back to that value. And if you don't have it locked down, it doesn't really matter about anything else because you're exposed. Yeah. As a lender, I think it's, like you say, it's crucial to make your own assessments. You can't blindly have faith in these appraisals. Unfortunately, the world of appraisals, like you can get three appraisers to go look at a property and they will all come out back with vastly different numbers. I'd say rarely would you see them all come back within like 5K. It's going to be like, if it's investment property too, it could be hundreds, if not millions in the difference. And so it's important as a lender to make sure they're not squeezing it or they might be overdoing it a bit because it doesn't take much for them. Like if it's an investment property, they just drop the cap rate quarter percent and that just squeaks it up an extra 400,000 bucks or they they juice the rent a little bit or whatever it may be. And then as an investor, even like the person borrowing the money, I guess 
you need to make sure you're comfortable with the number that they put there because it's all good and dandy that they'll lend you the money if you can get it through and all those things happen. But if you really can't achieve the targets that are on that paper, it can put you in a really precarious situation. And I, I think we've all heard those scenarios. And I think that's usually what happens when you hear people saying like, oh, this real estate investor like went sideways or went bust or whatever it may be. And it's while well, they probably put their market rents too high or their construction budget too low and they were just way too optimistic and an appraiser will listen to that if you're super optimistic and you tell them you can build it for 300000 and it's going to be worth a million bucks. Like They'll listen to that. But if you can't actually do it, it's not going to help you. Yeah. And I think you're kind of referring to, you know, an as complete value or an after repair value yep. there. And that's just, that's a completely different can of worms. But I, I just wanted to make another comment here too. It's always funny if we're talking a purchase appraisal, right? And say the purchase price is 500000 The appraisal comes back three days later at 502 you're just like, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's a very exact number. <laughs> so I'm just going to make the comment too. You know, you got to scrutinize the comparables. Yeah. You really, really got to hone in on that and see, okay, are these comparables actually in the same neighborhood, first of all? And if they're not, are they close enough that you could, you know, justify them as, as true comparables? And how recent are they, right? Are these comparables from two weeks ago? Or are they from two years ago, right? Because that, you know, markets change very quickly, as we know well. Yep. So you you want them as recent as possible, as close to the subject as possible. And you want to make sure there's not too many fluctuations with those comparables in terms of the style of property that you're comparing as well. Yeah, that's another good point. Exactly. For more regular purchase, sometimes the comps can be stretched because neighborhoods are very nuanced. I'm sure everyone knows that. And so sometimes an appraiser can be pressured to utilize some comps that might not be the greatest comp to have. Neil, are you are you suggesting that brokers get an appraiser's ears before they evaluate never. the property? Never, never happened. Never happened. <laughs> Everything's perfect all the time. Pure fiction. There's no, yeah, exactly. The only thing I'm seeing now with a lot of, like not a lot, but I've seen, I guess more apps than I thought, but I guess I'm not surprised, is we're getting very unique properties. Actually, like the one we opened this episode with, like Acadia Street, three and a half million dollars like what the hell is their comp it's impossible and there's a good chance there's a private involved in that build i, I don't suspect it's like a rbc or a bmo that's, that did that build for them and so it's like how do you when those come in you need to be very cautious even if the plans are super grandiose and everything makes sense it's a ton of risk to take on especially if it's a new segment in the marketplace that you're trying to build in a neighborhood like that yeah great point neil i think that's just another reason on that type of unique property, you really have to scale back your loan to value or just not do it, right? If you just can't get comfort around you know, the valuation and there's no true comparables to the property, maybe it's just not a good fit. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. And another point I wanted to make just on the LTV thing there, you know, we always want to be conservative with our loan to value just to reduce our risk in general in case there's any fluctuations on those values. But at the end of the day, you know, if your value's way off, so is your loan to value, right? You could lend 65% on a $400,000 property, but if it's not actually worth 400, it's worth 250, your 65 is not 65 anymore. <laughs> it's 100, right? So it's just it's something you got to be super cautious about, but it always comes back to that value. And just on that note, Neil, you, you brought up the after repair values or as complete values. So, you know, when we're doing a project like this, whether it's, you know, a real estate investor doing uh, doing a flip or major renovations or it's a ground up build, we always have the appraiser do an as is value. 
mm-hmm. and it has complete value, right? Mm-hmm. And the as is value is straightforward. You know, like we've talked about already, you're using comparables, readily available data that's in the market, and you can justify that value a little bit easier on the as is. Yep. The as complete or the ARV, it depends on the borrower doing the work they say they're going to do using the materials they say they're going to use, right? And basically that is just a conversation between the borrower and the appraiser that happens, right? Yeah. So you got to make sure that that actually happens. And another another yeah. factor to consider too is that as complete value is a future value in a market conditions that are currently unknown, right? Yeah. So if that as complete is likely going to happen, you know, most of our opportunities are probably 8 to 12 months out. Yep. When they're completed, is the market going to be the same, right? No, it won't be. Probably not. You know, maybe it's gone up and you're good, but maybe it's gone down by five or 10 points. Yeah. So all things you need to consider and just more reasons to continue being conservative on that after repair value. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't I didn't think about it from that aspect. I've been more so on the investor side where I'm like, so it's going to be great. It's going to be higher than it was last time. <laughs> um, and for the last probably 10, 12 years, it has been. But again, we're coming into a time where, you're, like you said, 12 months, it, it might not be the same. And if it's 20% down, if it's on a million bucks, like you said, you're, it doesn't take long for your loan to value to spike from 65 to 90% then, which puts you very offside or in a position where they can't refi you out. And they're not going to be super keen to sell because if you're 90% loan to value, they're probably going to walk away with no cash. You got it. So yeah, that's a really smart point. I'm going to tune it just a quick touch on that. If you're an investor listening and you're wondering how that works, you can have an appraiser do an assessment on what they think the property will be worth in the 12 months time doing the work that you've said you're going to do. And with that value, you can apply to get construction money to get that work done. I think a lot of people sometimes are like, well, the house will be worth 2 million when I'm done, but I don't have the cash to get there. If you can get an appraiser to, to say that, there's also an opportunity that a, a lender might step in and, and offer you some cash towards getting the project to that. But again, I, I didn't. to what you're saying too, it's funny to think like, yeah, I'm sure some people take the money and say they're going to do this crazy build. And then they're just like, ta-da. And it's like a very subpar build to what they had appraised. Because again, the appraisal is based on what they're saying and what's to come, with, which they can change. There's nobody on site every day being like, did you buy the... Exactly. The nice stone countertops that you do that big two bedroom you said you're going to do. So yeah, it's construction loans are considered to be, I'd say, some of the riskiest. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it depends on how you look at it. Like historically, I've seen very strong client profiles on the construction side of things. Yeah. But you got to be careful, right? You know, if someone's never picked up a hammer before in their life and they've got credit delinquency in the past, you probably don't want to lend to them on a construction deal. Yeah. But, you know, if they're 750 plus credit scores and have done four or five builds in the past successfully, proven track record, you know, that's great. And you, you go ahead with something like that. But they're more complex than the average loan just because of, you know, the different draw structures required. So there's less financial institutions who will take them on. Yeah. Which limits the options for borrowers as well. So on the private side of things, we do try to take some of that complexity out and simplify it. but you have to have the right fit from a borrower perspective. 100%. I think, how much of the business would you say is the construction loan? Like when you were in the, with Graysburg, you had, what would you say, what percentage of their portfolio was in construction? Yeah, I won't say the exact number, but it was a significant (laughs) portion of the portfolio. Yeah, is it? Okay, so yeah. And I think that is, again, for most private lenders, it makes it up. And in a lot of the, again, the big five, 
very seem to be continuously like backing away from construction, like from what I'm hearing, unless it's like massive, massive hundred, two hundred million dollar projects. And even those talking to some privates, like there's a ton of privates that'll only do like ten million dollar plus construction projects. Like that's just their bread and butter. We've seen it before too, Neil. The admin burden and complexity of those like sub one million dollar deals. Not many lenders want to take them on. Yeah, one hundred percent. Anything else on the appraised value side of things? That's all I wanted to cover. Yeah, I mean, it's an important. It's I'd say again one of the most important pieces of the of the whole puzzle. And I know it blew my mind when I started that that was something you could do. That was that was introduced to me by a broker, and he's like, "No, no, you can get a piece of paper that says it's worth this, and then you can work towards that." But uh, yeah, anyways. Good stuff. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you have an idea for a topic, shoot us a a message on Instagram or an email or check out our website, keycap.ca and shoot us a message on there. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you guys. Hey guys, it's Neil Andrino, your uh, co-host and your co-founder at Keystone Capital and Director of Investor Relations. I'm also a real estate agent, real estate investor and business owner. And your co-host here, Ryan McNeil. I'm the co-founder and president of Keystone Capital Group. Keystone Capital Group is licensed under the Mortgage Regulations Act of Nova Scotia, license number 3000549, and through FCMB, license number 88799. And keep in mind, the views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and is not financial advice.